The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hey there, everybody in Main Street Vegan Land. How wonderful that you're joining us today or sometime in the future when you're joining us. There seem to be two distinct ways of looking at a podcast. One idea is that it's supposed to be timeless, somehow recorded in the eternal now, and that every time you play it, it just grew up in this instant. And then the other view is it's good to know when something happened. That way you can give it a time and a a place and, and some sort of solidity. And I'm one of those people. I like knowing when something happened because, you know, things are kind of different with timing. It's October now, October of 2013, since I'm really, really one of those who likes to tell you when it is. And it's just a different feel. From a month ago, we're having a little bit of that crispy fall stuff in the air and things have been happening and are going to be happening. And I would love to share some of that with you. I have to tell you what happened today. I called my husband and said, you know how I have this charmed life and things happen to me that don't always happen to other people. And he said, yes, I know about that. (laughs) And, you know, it wasn't like I won the lottery or something, but it was just so sweet I 
had an appointment in Midtown and I went to the same place where I go for lunch every time when I'm in that neighborhood and it's called Argo Tea. Now that's a chain here in New York City. I think they're in some other cities as well. And Argo Tea has soy milk and almond milk. They have a couple of really nice hearty vegan salads with lentils or chickpeas in them. And they have a couple of uh, vegan muffins and they have two raw bars. So it's a very nice place to just run in and have a little lunch. And today it was so crowded that I was trying to find a little place to sit on a windowsill. And this woman said, oh, here, let me move my coat. You can sit here. And I noticed that we were having the same muffin. Now, this is really interesting because I'd never had the muffin. I always get the raw bar. But today, for whatever reason, I had the muffin. And I noticed she was having the same one. So just to make conversation, I said, I see we have the same taste in muffins. And she said, it's vegan. And I said, oh, are you vegan? And she said, I have been for 50 years. My mother turned our family vegan when I was six years old. Now, this is so serendipitous because a project that I will be working on next year, God willing, is a film project that has to do with vegans that time treats very well, ageless vegans. And this woman seems to be one of those. So uh, we traded information and had a nice conversation. So that was really fun. I always think that of all the tables in that cafe, of all the cafes on all of Manhattan Island, we both happened to be at that one at that time. And this tells me that God or somebody wants veganism to get out there. It's just easier and easier to have these kinds of serendipities that make it possible. So that was really, really fun. The other great fun vegan event of my past week was the Catskill Animal Sanctuary Shindig in Saugerties, New York. That was on Saturday. Oh, these animal sanctuaries are just the best places ever. You know how it is if you adopt a dog or a cat they really know that you've adopted them and that you've saved them and you guys are just bonded for life. It's like that with these cows and chickens and pigs and sheep and goats and horses. It was just lovely. And they do have the most beautiful bed and breakfast up there. You know, sometimes the sanctuaries are a little bit more, oh, let's say, on the (laughs) semi-camping kind of way. And sometimes, you know, that's fine too. This is a really, really nice place. So if you're looking for a little trip in the country and Saugerties, New York is some place that you could get to, I really, really recommend the Catskill Farm Animal Sanctuary. Saw a good friend up there, Nava Atlas, who's a wonderful, wonderful vegan chef. She's got a great book about holiday recipes, holiday cooking. So with the holidays just around the corner, you might want to check out her work. So this is going to be a really great show. Let me give you the phone number ahead of time because this is a fact-based show. You're going to be learning how to do something. And if you have any questions on that, you may just want to call in 888-558-6489 because after the break, I'm going to be bringing on one of my oldest friends, not oldest in age, but oldest in long, long time, Um, Mark Bronstein, who was actually on a year ago talking about some other things, has a new book out now called Microgreen Garden. And he is going to help us understand 
what is the deal with these teeny tiny infant vegetables? I know we know that vegetables are good, and I know we know that sprouts are good, and I've even read that sprouts are better than the vegetables they'll one day become. The microgreens are somewhere in the middle, and we're going to find out how to do that. And Mark says that you can have a microgreen garden even if you're my neighbor up here in Manhattan where space is at a premium and we don't have a a back 40 or even a backyard. So that's some pretty exciting stuff. So please stay with us through these announcements, through this um, little message of importance, and then we'll be back with more Main Street Vegan right here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world, we count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. What if you could experience vibrant health? Help heal the planet and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. of spiritually conscious living start now for a time-tested method to live with purpose and release your infinite potential tune in to the yoga hour living the eternal way with yogacharya ellen grace o'brien every thursday morning at 10 a.m central 8 a.m pacific only on unity online radio the voice of an awakening world listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan. I was just talking during the break with Jeff, our engineer, and with Mark Bronstein, our guest who's going to be coming up, about the fruits of the season. My husband just loves peaches, plums, and nectarines. And all summer, he eats lots and lots of them. And then when they stop being in season, he he just seems like they were taken off the market just to be mean to him. It's like, there are no peaches. 
And Mark reminded me that persimmons are coming. Oh my gosh, persimmons are just the best thing ever. And how lovely it is to kind of live through this cycle of the year and pay attention to what's in season and eat accordingly. It gives life just a little more magic and a little more delight. So someone who has brought magic and delight into my life and into the lives of all the people who have read his incredible books, Mark Matthew Bronstein is a very interesting fellow in that he is both visually artistic and an incredible wordsmith. And that seems to be rare. I mean, I don't have the visual part at all, but I love words. He can do both. Mark's first book, Radical Vegetarianism, was published in 1981 and reissued three years ago by Lantern Books. He's also the author of Sprout Garden, now in its seventh printing, and Microgreen Garden, published just two months ago, so we're really going to be talking about the microgreens today. Mark also frequently contributes articles to many magazines, including Vegetarian Times, Vegetarian Voice, Natural Health, Healing Our World, and Treating Yourself. Hey, Mark. Hi, Victoria. And congratulations. You have retired, and that means you managed to stay at one job for a really long time. 26 years at the same workplace and the same home. So now both have to change. Wow. You know, a lot of people say things like they think vegans are kind of flighty. I had that especially when I was raising my daughter because she was not only vegan, but she was also homeschooled. And people would say, how is she ever going to hold down a job? And I said the same way everybody else does. So she started working full-time as an actor when she was 16. She's been working ever since, no problem. But I must say, when I hear that you have been there for 26 years, that's impressive. Congratulations on your next chapter coming up. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Now, you have been vegan longer than me, and there aren't many people who can say that. When did you go vegan? 1970, the summer of 1970, I was working, and here comes a real confession, I was working as a good humor man, driving a truck around, dispensing all of that evil stuff called ice cream to little kitties. (laughs) And at the same time, I was reading literature. I was already already a vegetarian for four years, mostly uh, self-generated, not from anyone I knew, not from anything I read, just uh, self-deduction. But I began reading the literature put out by one man who was the founder of the North American Vegetarian Society and the American Vegan Society, and that's Jay Dinshaw. At that time, it was the only literature available on why one would want to become a vegan because of the way the dairy industry treated its cows and especially the calves. So having read his literature, I decided I've got to do it. And as soon as I came to the end of my good humor summer, I became vegan. That is so exciting because in those days, it was just weird. I know Rin Berry, who's a friend of both of ours, teaches the history of the vegan, vegetarian, and raw movements for Main Street Vegan Academy. And that's always my favorite class because there is history to this. We didn't just all of a sudden, you know, say, oh gosh, Bill Clinton did it, let's do it. This has been going on for a while, but Before 1975, it seems to me, because I went vegetarian in 1969, so we were kind of close in there, 
But it seems to me that before 1975, when there was that World Vegetarian Conference in Maine, when um, Peter Singer's Animal Liberation was published, and when PETA was founded, how many of us were there, like 50 in this country? It was little tiny. There weren't as many vegetarians, and there were far, far fewer vegans, because at that time, the percentage of vegans was only like um, a percentage point or so of the vegetarian community. It became about 10%, I think, 20 years ago. But now, my understanding is it's close to 50% of all vegetarians are vegans. It's exciting. I don't run into a lot of vegetarians anymore. I mean, sometimes, but more vegans. Right, exactly. Yeah, this to me is so inspiring. And if anybody's listening who has some kind of cause that just seems so embryonic and like nobody's interested and nobody cares, take heart. Because back in the 1970s, that was how it was about veganism. And look at it now. You can go to Argo Tea and get lentil salad and green tea vegan muffins. A lot has happened in this time. In the 1970s, no one even knew the word, nor its tenants. Least of all, even vegetarians had never even heard the word. So you had to actually use some other description like, you know, pure vegetarian, non-dairy vegetarian. You couldn't say the word vegan, and most people didn't even like the pronunciation of it anyway. So I think that Jay Dinshaw is just a great hero, the late Jay Dinshaw, and I'm amazed at how few new vegans even know that name or know that the American Vegan Society still very much exists. Freya Dinshaw, Jay's widow and co-founder, is still out there running things. I just heard from them this morning. They're starting a speaker's bureau. So I just feel that getting this history out there is, is part of my legacy. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, you're certainly part of the history now and the pers- best person to spread the word further. Um, but besides just speaking and, and listening and reading and writing, you know, doing and being is just as important. And the one thing that really solidified my veganism was that next academic year, I went back to college after the summer of 1970 and I made a friend of a, I was a sophomore. He was a freshman and he was a dairy. He came from a dairy farmer family. And most weekends he went home to the dairy farm to work because, after all, the only workers were the children and 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 the mother and father. So I joined him on two long weekends and worked on his dairy farm, and that was the best of all circumstances that calves and cows were treated. And yet even there, you know, I saw things that only solidified my commitment to become a vegan. So that was a really that was the most um, important feature of of my path, so to speak, was actually doing it, was actually hauling, you know, hauling myself to a dairy farm and feeding the cows and, and shoveling the dung and so forth. And I think so many people now say, well, you know, I, I only drink organic milk or I get my cheese from a family farm. And of course, that's better. Any step we can take in a direction of a little more kindness, a little more humanity, that's all good. But it's still bad. Mm-hmm. And and you actually experienced that. So, who were your or some of your other role models and influencers in the early days? Um, and I'm primarily a writer, and therefore also primarily a reader. And so, the literature I was reading um, 
brought me on further paths of vegetarianism. Uh, I began reading natural hygienic literature, particularly Herbert Shelton. Natural hygiene is, is a movement you don't hear much about anymore because the actual society, the American Natural Hygiene Society, is completely dissolved. They were the ones who were keeping the very voluminous writings of Herbert Shelton in print, and now most of it has gone out of print because they were the ones who were, who were publishing it. Um, so I was reading much literature within the vegetarian movements, and there's many. There's macrobiotics, except for their fish or sea animals, and um, then there's the raw foodism, which is usually all vegan and certain vegetarian. But natural hygiene was made the most sense to me. Everything seemed, indeed, the word natural incorporated in it. But I, all of that reading still didn't convince me to take that step to become totally raw foodist. I was certainly predominantly raw foodist by that time. And it took the book of one other person who provided not just the information, which Herbert Shelton is certainly a rich source of, but who provided me the inspiration and that one inspirational book for me at that time, which first came out in 1975 and I read it in 1977, was Survival into the 21st Century by Victoris Kilvinskas, who is now known as the grandfather of the raw food movement. In the yes, States. and still speaking and doing all these great things. You know, when you talked about Herbert Shelton, you reminded me of something I hadn't thought of in a long time. Oh, my gosh. I remember going to the Kansas City Public Library and asking for a couple of Herbert Shelton's books. One was called Fasting Can Save Your Life. Mm -hmm. And the librarian there was very dismissive. And she said to me, we don't have a book like that. That's radical. And it really hurt my feelings. And I called Jay Dinshaw. I was probably crying or something. And he said... Go back to that librarian and ask her if they carry Mein Kampf. <laughs> I thought, you know, it's really true. This library would have a book by Adolf Hitler, but not a book about fasting by Herbert Shelton. Mm-hmm. Wow, the things we remember. So do you consider yourself a raw fooder today? Um, I'm, I would have to say 80% raw. Uh, there were two years of my life in 1977 to about 1979 when I was indeed 100%. But I found the difference in my level of health between eating 100% raw and eating 80 or 85% raw was slight, if ever, if anything. So I felt it was just so much more accommodating in, in life to be able to include some cooked foods. And I never had the, the need for cooked foods that some people seem to um, claim that in the wintertime they get cold. My reason for adopting cooked food at the time was just because I was lacking the variety that I had in the summer, in the winter, living in the middle of Chicago back then. So that's the main reason I began eating cooked foods again. And I didn't really notice much of a change in my level of health between that 80, 85% raw or 100% raw. So that's the main reason why I've given up that purity part of it. Yeah, but I think that that's really where the raw movement is coming back to. The the people who were very adamantly 100% are now saying something in the 75 to 80 range mm. seems to make the most sense for most people. And I think it's doable. You know, we mm. all have families and weddings and airports. So yes. some... So yeah, when what, I was... 
when I was strictly raw, I would visit my mother about once a month. And it was already hard enough for her adopting to my vegan diet after being very accommodating to my vegetarian diet. So to ask her to only prepare a salad for me, just she didn't feel she was doing enough. So she still tried to serve me cooked food. And I began eating a few of the cooked dishes from her. And I would feel sick right after, but that was no big deal because my body just wasn't used to it, eating cooked food all of a sudden for the first time. So I realized if I just had a little more cooked food a little more often, I would get over that hump of of being um, ill or at least feeling not as good digestively as otherwise when I did eat cooked foods. And by the way, the opposite would would be true as well. If when we're in biotic, eating nothing but cooked foods, and all of a sudden ate some piece of raw fruit, that person would get just as sick digestively as the opposite that I've just mentioned happened to me. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're really healthy. I mean, you're the age that you're able to retire from your job, and you've done some remarkable things in your life. How much of that do you attribute to the way you eat? <sighs> well... Let me first say that I think diet is only the third most important factor in one's health. That exercise is probably more important, the second. But the most important is your frame of mind, your peace of mind. And I guess in order to have really true, vibrant, full health, you have to have all three components in play. So, yes, I maintain a very uh, strict whole foods diet, not just vegan, but whole foods, you know, no white flour, no white sugar, very little white salt. The only time I ever eat that is when it's in something that's already prepared and provided to me. I will avoid white salt even if I have the opportunity. So, so my diet is, you know, is basically no white foods of any sort. That's very important. Be whole foods, not just be vegan. In terms of exercise, yeah, I do a lot of exercise. I don't have to do things out of the ordinary even just going for walks is exercise. And that's probably my major exercise is walking, if you can understand. And then peace of mind, well, I don't know about that one. I can't make any claims. So, Well, I, I think you've got a, a lot of it. So I, I guess I, I do feel, since you've made the little joke about if I understand that people who aren't familiar with, with your work in your life don't know that you were in an accident uh, several years ago, and you have made incredible strides after that. Could you just briefly fill us in on that part of things? Yeah, sure. In 1990, I became paraplegic um, from a diving accident, paralyzed below the waist. First year, I was only in a wheelchair with some very, very limited ambulation. Um, But after a year, I was able to get up on crutches, and more importantly, 23 years later, I'm still able to walk on crutches and still maintain a lifestyle where I do emulate, which is actually, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging about that of all things, but it's very rare for a person to still be able to walk with crutches 23 years down the line because one's shoulders give way and, and other things about the body have usually fallen apart. I haven't had any of that. And also one very important thing, which I don't mind you know, mentioning um, to the general public, among paraplegia, it's not just about walk. It, it impacts the other four-letter words, the, the sacral functions. And I am unable to, you know, let's use the more scientific term, urinate at will. I have to you know, use what's called a, a catheter of my penis in order to release the urine. Most people who do that are 
having urinary tract infections every day of their lives. They're always on constant antibiotic regimen because they're always coming in out of urinary tract infections. In 23 years of paraplegia, I have never had one urinary tract infection despite my six or seven times a day putting a catheter up my, up my uh, urethra tube. So there's something in that. And what that means is, among other factors perhaps, the most important one is you get urinary tract infections when your urine is very, very uh, alkaline. You want acidic urine, which does not create the environment where bacteria can breed. And in fact, when you have an alkaline diet, you have acidic urine, and I obviously have a very alkaline diet. That's a living proof of it, never having had a UTI. Many females who are normal, walking and everything else, have UTIs on a regular basis. Yeah, it's amazing. And I've seen you in the past two years, and and you walk around. They told you you weren't going to walk at all. They told you, you know, forget crutches. You're going to be in a wheelchair. I remember when you said you wanted to be able to walk on crutches so that you could run the hunters off your property. And I knew then you could do it because there's just something about wanting something for yourself, but also for the others. There seems to be something extra and special in that. And, and you've done it. And that's, that's just incredible. So explain this um, acid alkaline thing for our readers, because I think it confuses people sometimes. The mm-hmm. alkaline foods are what? Oh, basically your uh, whole foods that are not white flour, okay? Uh, not junk food. Junk foods are predominantly going to be acidic foods. White flour, white sugar especially, and meat, okay? Those are very acidic foods. And that creates your alkaline urine. I don't know the chemistry between one cause and the other, but that's what happens. And the alkaline urine enables bacteria to form and thrive. So you really want to maintain an alkaline diet. And that's just whole foods the way they come in nature. And really, it can't be any, I can't explain it any more simply than that. So, you know, just a matter of avoiding those acidic foods. And I guess eating lots and lots of these incredible young vegetables that we're going to be talking about after the break. But I do want to spend just a couple of minutes before we go to break, since you and I are both writers, I've got to talk about publishing. Now, your latest book is Microgreen Garden, and you can also go to the the website microgreengarden.com, which has all your wonderful photographs. You're also an accomplished published nature photographer, and you've done all the photography of, of the microgreens. But you're a funny writer, and you're really good at twists of phrase. And it seems that your publisher from Microgreens Garden, and we love your publisher. They're vegans. They're great, great people. But they made the decision to take out your humor, and I just think that's really sad. No, just don't cry over it. That's all. (laughs) But can I just read some of it? You put this disclaimer. I don't know how many of the books have the disclaimer, but I got one. And and you say, for example... um, The plastic is recycle number one, P-E-T or P-E-T-E. Be on the lookout also for R-E-P-E-T-E, which is recycled from P-E-T and whose name provides ample evidence that even government bureaucrats have a sense of humor. See, I love stuff like that. And here's another one. You say, 
you're talking about some of the plastic containers that one can grow greens in, and you say, punch holes in their bottoms and in their lids. This is where lawyers caution publishers to instruct authors to advise readers to wear protective eye gear. To me, (laughs) that makes a how-to book so delightful. And I'm sorry that those are not in this book, but you know what I have to say, that even without them, this is a very readable book. Now, I read this book because I love you and because you're on my show. I am not a gardener. My daughter gardens, all our listeners know that. I just, I don't know. I just don't do nature very well. And everybody always used to say I was this terrible vegan because I just didn't get into the dirt. I just don't have that gene. But I have to say that in reading your book, I'm going to try this because it's quite appealing, a garden on the windowsill. And probably the the best part of it is um, the appeal of the beauty of them, which is what the photographs they were for. That, and you also talked about how it cleans your air, how it gives the room this wonderful, subtle scent that you come to not notice perhaps anymore if you're used to it, but when people come over, they notice it. So that's all cool stuff. And after this break, we are going to come back with more Mark Matthew Bronstein, Microgreen Garden. And you are going to learn what's the whole microgreen thing about and how you can do it for yourself. Stay with us. What if you could experience vibrant health? Help heal the planet and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. Have you ever considered that everything you think and say is a prayer to the universe? Are you sending a positive or negative message? Join Reverend Beverly Molander and her guests on Affirmative Prayer, Activating the Power of Yes, to find out how they activated the power of yes in their lives, their communities, or the world. If they can do it, you can too. Listen to Beverly Molander and her guests live every Monday at noon Central, 1 p.m. Eastern on Affirmative Prayer, activating the power of yes, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for Main Street Vegan. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back. This is Victoria Moran. I'm the author of Main Street Vegan, the director of Main Street Vegan Academy, 
do check out what's going on with us at MainStreetVegan.net. We've got some new fun stuff up there. The most fun, which is the Main Street Vegan Cruise happening in February of 2015. I'm also going to be out at Unity Village where Jeff, our wonderful engineer, hangs out doing a retreat the weekend of April 13th. That's at the wonderful health and and holistic center there at Unity Village. So check all that out. I'm talking today with Mark Matthew Bronstein, author of Microgreen Garden, Indoor Grower's Guide to Gourmet Greens. Oh, that's a nice subtitle. (laughs) That'll grab people. And you can find more at microgreengarden.com and also more about the inimitable Mr. Bronstein at markbronstein.com. O-R-G. So, okay, Mark, what is a microgreen and why is it better than a sprout? Um, well, a microgreen is the stage after a sprout. It's um, If you have a sprout, you only need water, warmth, and air to begin sprouting, the germination process. We could call it you know, germinations instead of sprouts. It wouldn't sound quite as romantic, but that's exactly what it is. And generally, the things that we as uh, consumers of sprouts eat is something that's only four, no more than five days old. After that, the seed has exhausted its reserves of nutrition that you know came with the uh, seed, the, the cotyledon, which is the the food stuff for that germinating part of it. So when they exhaust it, then they need new nutrients now from the environment or have to begin manufacturing the cells by the process of photosynthesis. And that's why then a sprout has to sort of give way to now the next stage. And we used to call them seedlings. Microgreen is a term that only evolved in the late 1970s for the first time. Before that, if we had a name for those same things, we called them seedlings, which is really exactly what they have been all along. It's, a, I think, a very um, nice term. It's new, certainly. Micro has always a ring to it. Um, so the stage you need next then to provide these little sprouts, what you have to provide for them is sunlight so they can generate the sugars, the plant sugars themselves through photosynthesis, but also soil because then they need their minerals. So you do have that extra complication, soil and sunlight, in addition to what you've already provided, water, air, and warmth in creating the sprout. So just... Well, first explain to me about the nutrition. You've got the sprout and then the microgreen, and then I would think the next stage is what you can buy in the store as baby greens. Is that right? Baby kale? Yes, also called mescaloons, a French word for just baby salad greens. Yep. And then you have the mature vegetable. Right, any stage thereof along the way. So does the plant get more nutritious as it goes along or less? Well, let's just say ounce for ounce, it becomes less so, all right? But on the other hand, in terms of how much sprouts or how, how, how much microgreen one eats compared to, let's say, a whole head of broccoli, well, people tend to eat less of those things anyway. So if you're only seeking in terms of quantities of nutrition, it probably almost evens out whether you ate an ounce of broccoli sprouts or what really are broccoli, broccoli microgreens, as opposed to eight ounces of full-grown 
steamed broccoli. But the major difference between the two, the microgreen and the mature, is that many of those mature vegetables that people eat, they're consuming them cooked, but they're consuming them as microgreens only raw. So there's the difference between raw and cooked. Okay. So if we want to do this, if we want to grow them, talk to me like I'm five years old because agriculturally I am. Teach me. Teach all of us listening. All right. Um, first thing is, of course, seeds. And you could go to your health food store, particularly if there's a bulk uh, department, and you could just buy the smallest quantity of all the kinds of things you think might sprout or not and find out if, indeed, they have a very high viability rate and just start with those. Remember, you're only buying a small quantity to experiment. If you don't have that source, you know, bulk bin, where you can buy a small quantity, then sure, buy a whole pound of a certain bean or a certain grain, See if that'll sprout on you and grow it into a microgreen, whatever. And if it doesn't, just use it as you would normally cook it. However, you can. the next resort would be to buy it from a sprout company or a gardening scene company. And there are several gardening scene companies that specialize in microgreen seeds. And uh, for a list of them, you can go to my website and you can download a PDF of microgreen seed sources. Okay. Now, you've got the seeds, you've got to provide the soil, the container, and the container couldn't be anything cheap. We're all vegans here, we're on their way to becoming vegans, and that means, more likely than not, we eat lots of small fruits, berries, cherry tomatoes, figs, dates, raspberries, blueberries. These all come in these plastic pint containers, or half pints, and there's they are ideal containers for growing your first microgreens. They couldn't be better. You'd have to go to a gardening store and buy special pint seedling containers for growing seedlings, and those don't have the number of holes on the bottoms that the fruit containers do, nor do they have all the holes on the lids that the fruit containers do. It couldn't be better. So you would get, for one pint container of fruit, you'd get two containers, okay? Cut off the lids from both, put the bottom, the container part, one inside the other, because you want to bolster the bottom to keep it rigid and so that the rootlets aren't impacted by sitting on the, uh, the platform, the tray. All right, you put, so you put one inside the other. You could lay a little piece of paper down if you want or just soil directly in it, and I would recommend potting soil or seedling mix soil from a gardening store. Last resort would be for you, for instance, go out to Central Park, dig out some stuff from Central Park, which is probably illegal to do anyway, but you know, bring that home. The problem with that is you'll be bringing in lots of little buggies along with it. And they probably, if there aren't buggies, there'd be eggs of them, and they'd probably hatch in your home. The reason why you'd want to do potting soil or seedling mix soil from a gardening store is it's it's... It's looser, it's got um, the, the right consistency, but also it's been sterilized. It's been either pasteurized or sterilized, and that's so that you don't have the little buggies and also the little seeds from other plants that would be, in, our, in this case, considered weed, weeds by us, right? So the most expensive part of the venture is going to be the soil. In New York City, you probably would only want to buy a small quantity, small bag to bring home. 
but in any other uh, town or whatever, you would buy a whole bale of it and be very inexpensive. So you got your soil, you got your container, all right? Lay the microgreens on top of the, the microgreen seeds on top of the soil. 90% of the types of ones you'd want to grow, you put on top of the soil, not under the soil, because then when they grow up, they don't bring a little bit of the soil along with them. You don't have to bother washing them once they're ready to harvest, okay? Sunlight is one limiting factor for someone, let's say, living in an apartment in Manhattan. Let's just say you only had one window on the north that's facing north. That might not work to the best extent that you would hope. You'd, there are certain microgreens that, indeed, you need shade for. But most everything else, you'd need six hours of direct sunlight to get your best harvest. But six hours is it's appreciably less than an entire day. Six hours is only one-third of the day, usually sunlight. So that's your basic components. And so far, you, you feel confident you can pursue all that? I could do that. Okay. And water, if you need to, if you think that your New York City water with the very high chlorine content is not you know the best thing, you could let that sit for a day in an open container. The chlorine will evaporate away. So at least you've rid the chlorine out of the water. If the water tastes bad or funny to you, then it's probably not good for the microgreens. But if it tastes okay to you, it probably is fine for the microgreens too. So the water shouldn't be a problem. Generally, most people can use the water right out of the faucet, even from large cities where it's highly chlorinated. All right, so you've got all that going. You spray the microgreens with a fine mist the first two or three days. Then, as you've got your seedlings emerging... You put them in the sun, sunlight, meaning only, you know, 6 to 18 hours a day. The rest is darkness. Darkness is essential. All right? And warmth, if you can provide it, if it happens to be a cool temperatures, but warmth is, is better, generally speaking. And you will get a product that, you know, these things want to grow. They don't really need you to coax them along, but the best conditions you can provide, you know, you'll have a product sooner rather than later. So instead of waiting eight days, you might have a harvest ready in six days if you provide all the conditions that are ideal. You know, this actually sounds fun because I do like sprouting. Now, here's a confession. I love the process of growing sprouts, and I think it's so exciting when, when they plump up and when they get their little tail. But I have to say that most sprouts are not my favorite Foods. Even in the summer when I eat so much raw food that I start thinking I'm a raw fooder, I'm just not a big sprout person. Are the baby mm-hmm. greens going to make me happier? Well, there's a whole wide variety of baby greens, but let's talk about the ones that we know will taste good. And you could, you know, rather than the brassicas generally, which are very highly nourishing, you know, broccoli, cabbage, kale, um, if we think more of the herbs, and talking about basil, okay, um, and then further herbs that we generally season our foods with, dill, fennel, cilantro, um, carrot and celery are considered botanically herbs. Okay, all these things, as my greens taste, delicious. No one needs any coaxing to have to eat those because they really taste as good as we're familiar with them. Others... Sorrel, it's fantastic taste, okay? So there's a whole variety of microgreens that really taste good. 
and I can't necessarily say the same for sprouts, I admit. On top of that, I think most microgreens, or actually all of them, look beautiful when they're growing, but sprouts, they're just not as photogenic. They don't (laughs) really appeal to the eye, I think, in most cases. Yeah, these microgreens are gorgeous, but I must say, Mark, all the ones that you mentioned specifically just now, you have in your book under the very delicious but somewhat challenging to grow category. So what's easy? What would Uh, you tell somebody to start with? Well, generally, the brassicas are very easy, all right? And by that, you know, as I already mentioned, you know, there's broccoli and and kale and cabbage. They're easy. Um, Really easy ones. There's a list in the book, okay? And also, uh, I'll have it on my website. And Generally, the brassicas, but mustard is about the easiest of all. Turnip is the fastest growing of all the brassicas, and the brassicas are the fastest growing of all the migraines. So turnip would be a really good one because it's so fast. You have a product that you could harvest in four days on turnips, okay? Wow. Uh, Now, the one that's sort of halfway between really good tasting but a little bit difficult on the difficult side, but let's just say a um, a good... medium between the two is sunflower and that's back from the 1970s sunflower greens people who were influenced by Victoris Kovinska such as myself we owe that to Victoris people have forgotten that the whole idea of growing and eating sunflower greens began with one man and that was Victoris Kovinska it's a gift he gave to mankind which is quite a gift to give, I would imagine, for any one person. And it's all yeah. credited to him. Well, that's a microgreen. It's called, it was called a green then, but it's a microgreen. Wheatgrass, which is, comes from Ann Wigmore and Victoris, both, it's not quite a microgreen, but it's also, it's also incorporated in the diet in the same way by these same raw foodist people. It's not quite a microgreen because you don't really eat it. You chew it and then either spit out the pulp or you juice it. Okay, but you grow it the same way you would a microgreen, and so really, for that reason, it's incorporated in in any discussion of microgreens as well. Now, this is really cool. I'm looking at my empty windowsill and planning where I'm going to put all my plastic fruit containers. So the next time we talk, I, I can tell you how I've done with that. <laughs> all right. And and this is seriously. I, I know this stuff is so so healthy, and I think you were very smart. Or your your publisher was very smart in calling um, microgreen garden the indoor grower's guide to gourmet greens. Because where I see these in person is at these really fancy restaurants in New York City, both vegan and just kind of local and um, shichi kinds of restaurants. So the chefs have discovered them. And it's about time for those of us who are chefs at home to discover them as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. So uh, t- tell us what you eat in a day. What I eat? What you eat. In a day. All right. Um, two meals a day. Breakfast is fruits and nuts. Dinner is sprouts, microgreens. Uh, it's, it's sometimes some cooked food, whole grains, rice, um, buckwheat. But all the beans I eat, I, I sprout them first. Some of them I eat raw, like the lentils and the mung. But the rest I steam. And I even steam the lentils and the mung on many occasions. I would never serve to someone else who's not a raw foodist lentil sprouts raw. I would only serve it to them cooked. 
Right? It takes a little bit of a, a common, you know, a little bit of a getting used to, I think, digestibly. But um, in the dinner is, I'd say, what generally what everyone else eats, just without the other ingredients of meat, flour, meat, flour products. Breakfast is perhaps unique for me because I do eat nothing but fruit and some nuts or sometimes a nut sauce with the fruits. That's my entire breakfast is just fruits. And it seems that on that kind of, of eating plan, I'm reading a lot of people who, who eat similarly to what you're talking about. That's rather more abstemious than I think I could ever be. And yet the, the people who do that seem to have such a clear system. It just seems that they don't have to go on a, a cleanse uh, twice a year yeah. because they're already clean. I agree about that point. And I kind of scratch my head when I hear about all these rough foodists always going on periodic cleansing diets or fasts and things. And I don't know. I don't understand the need for it. I used to fast a lot. Um, I've gone on long-term fasts, but that was early on when I first became a rough foodist and I guess getting out all the bad stuff. But now when I do go on these short-term fasts, not much comes out. Yeah. So I don't need to fast for very long and I hardly fast at all for that reason. Oh, wow. That's that's a wonderful thing to be able to say. There's just there's a certain degree of magic in, in discovering this, and I'm just so happy that you have found it and that you have shared it with other people. So just give us a couple of minutes, Mark, on how you see the future. Do you think we're going to end up with a vegan world? <laughs> well, uh, you and I and others certainly would hope so, but I think realistically – that's not going to happen. Um, human beings are too diverse. We all start out with different types of bodies. We all live different lives. And I, a vegan diet is ideal for everyone. For most people, yes, but some people need to eat a few of the foods that we would not call vegan. And, you know, that's just the way we were built, let's say, our genes, our ethnic uh, origin but also our lifestyle, we're too diverse. We're too different from each other. Human beings is a very, very um, neutral term, but if you really get down and look at all the different humans in the world, I mean, our different races, I just think that we would never all become vegan, certainly not within our lifetimes. So I don't know. How do you feel? Well, I feel that at some point, one of my favorite unity ministers, his name was Ernest Wilson, and he had this phrase, he talked about the upward progression of the universe. And I guess I just want to believe in the upward progression of the universe. And at some point that humans will become so open hearted to the suffering of others that, yeah, we just might have a vegan world. I don't know which incarnation I will be in when we're having that. <laughs> but uh, it certainly keeps me going. I guess I'll put it that way. Mark, God bless you. And let me know what, what you do with your retirement and what wonderful projects you uh, come up with once you get moved five miles down the road. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Everybody, the book is Microgreen Garden. The author is Mark Bronstein. That's B-R-A-U-N-S-T-E-I-N. The website is Microgreen Garden. 
And this will give you all the details, all the photographs, everything that you need to know to become a gardener indoors. I'm going to get myself some overalls and try it out. Thank you so much, Mark. Be with us next week when my guest is John Schlimm author of The Cheesy Vegan. Later on in October, we're going to have John Pierre. He's known as the personal trainer to Ellen DeGeneres, but I know him as a 30-year vegan with a great big heart. And the end of the month, we'll have the famous vegan baker, Fran Costigan, author of the brand new beautiful book, Vegan Chocolate. Everybody, God bless you and eat your veggies. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. If I were brave, I'd walk the races Where fools and dreamers dare to tread And never lose faith How is life working for you? Would it be okay with you if life got easier, simpler, yet more meaningful and vibrant? Join certified life coach Carla McClellan Tuesday afternoons for Vibrant Living. Each week, Coach Carla and her guests will share strategies and solutions designed to make your life more vibrant. Is there something in your life you'd like help with? A dream you'd like to achieve? A relationship you'd like to improve? Call into the show toll-free for Coaching with Carla. That's Vibrant Living, Life Coaching with Carla, Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Central on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. What if we're all meant to do what we secretly dream? Inspiration only takes a moment. We invite you to focus your attention inward with these words from Elizabeth Searle Lamb. This is a new day. Lead your conscious mind to that still haven of your soul where your indwelling Christ opens wide the doorway of your heart. At once, mind, soul, and body, you are flooded with the light and love of God. You are lifted high above this earthly plane and filled with the radiance of spirit. Send this love and light on to those whom you hold dear so that it may uplift, heal, and comfort them. As you send this radiance on, you are filled with a new sense of God's power, and you release this power to the whole world to uplift, guide, and bless all people. A day's tasks await you, but God is with you, and with God's help, all shall be done perfectly. This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity. If I were brave, I'd walk the razor's edge Where fools and dreamers dare to tread And never lose faith How is life working for you? 
Would it be okay with you if life got easier, simpler, yet more meaningful and vibrant? Join certified life coach Carla McClellan Tuesday afternoons for Vibrant Living. Each week, Coach Carla and her guests will share strategies and solutions designed to make your life more vibrant. Is there something in your life you'd like help with? A dream you'd like to achieve? A relationship you'd like to improve? Call into the show toll-free for Coaching with Carla. That's Vibrant Living, Life Coaching with Carla, Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Central on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. What if we're all meant to do what we secretly dream? We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.